Welcome to Sounding History, a podcast about music, history, climate change, and culture. I'm Chris Smith from Texas Tech University in the USA. And I'm Tom Irvine from the University of Southampton in the UK. This is a podcast about the global history of music with a twist. Our history is not shaped around famous performers, composers, and works, but rather as reflections upon the relationship between sound and the exploitation of Earth's resources. Today, scientists and historians alike argue that around the year 1500 of the Common Era, human extraction of natural resources began to change the climate itself. They call this new era the Anthropocene. With the Anthropocene came capitalism and the globalization of many aspects of human culture, along with settler colonialism, mass enslavement, and environmental destruction. We explore how processes like these have shaped 500 years of history and the worlds of sound we occupy today. Concentrating on three core categories, labor, energy, and data, we seek new, different, and challenging stories about music on a global scale. What shaped the world in which we find ourselves? Who are its many voices? We invite you to join us as we unpack why sound is, when, and for whom. So let's begin. So we've reached the last of our first set of episodes, our first series here on Sounding History, which is, I think, something to celebrate. And today we're going to talk about a book with a charming title, Decomposed. The Political Ecology of Music. It's by Kyle Devine and came out uh, in 2019 from MIT Press. This is a book that Tom recommended to me and said, you know, you should really check out what this guy is doing because he's working with the political ecology of music, which is a term I would not have associated with music, but it is absolutely consistent with the kind of work that Tom and I have hypothesized for our big book project, which has to do with the material culture of music and manufacture, and especially for our project, the history of musical culture, manufacture, and its implications with colonialism and imperialism. So when Tom recommended this book to me, which I hadn't previously read, I did go and find it and read it, and I actually went back and found the 2015 article in Popular Music, which is sort of the springboard that Kyle Devine used for this. And it's a fantastic book about the history of the material commodification of music sound on objects. Yeah, I just want to say for our listeners that, of course, as always, we'll put links to the book in the show notes on our website and also to the article in Popular Music in the academic journal Popular Music that Chris mentioned. Wonderful resource. The book is great. It uh, particularly resonates for us, and I would think would resonate for our listeners, because he tells a story of the acoustical and then the electrical reproduction of music on various recording formats. First, shellac, from 1900 to around the year 1950 in the Common Era, then plastic, specifically vinyl, polyvinyl chloride, and then from about 2000, essentially to the present, in an era of data. And since Tom and I are working on a project which very much focuses around music through the media of labor, energy, and data, there's a lot of resonance between Divine's work and our own. You know, it's funny, Chris, and I want to share this with our listeners. When we sat down 
summer of 2019 to map out the book and then again in February 2020 when I came out to see you in the before times in um, Lubbock, Texas. We were very pleased with um, our instinct, which was to talk about materials, to talk about natural resources. And also then we came on the sort of strapline labor energy data. And the funny thing is, I guess I'd, I knew about this book decomposed before we did that, but I didn't realize that I knew about it while we were talking and then I only found it again afterwards. And that's a kind of funny thing that happens in our business, right? There are things that are in the air that you kind of pull out. Yeah. And I had a similar experience, not with this book, but with Michael Denning's wonderful book called Noise Uprising, which was another real tentpole for our conception, which we'll also put in our show notes, which is about the moment when audio recording shifts from acoustical media to electrical microphones and the transformation of that decade in the 1920s. And so, as you said, Tom, there's something in the air, particularly amongst musicologists, that is, I would say, driving us to consider our role as historians, not of music as an isolated or siloed or black boxed kind of phenomenon, but as music which is part of global flows of commerce, politics, and history. Take us through Divine's argument a little bit, if you can. He suggests that in order to address what music means, or at least what the commodification of music means, specifically in reproducible objects, he says, we must come face to face with its entire material culture and its place within the entire capitalist world system. Now, as I understand it, and you may be able to speak to this, Tom, material culture studies is a thing in historiography. As somebody who's trained in folklore, I think, oh, doorknobs and spokeshaves and floor plants. But from what you've told me in the course of our conversations, material culture is also another arsenal, not just in the folklorist, but also in the historian's arsenal. I totally agree, agree with you. It is about things. It's about objects. And, and that's what we mean by material culture, right? It's like thinking. It's a fancy way to say history of things. This book is about, I think, and he, had, he talks about this in the book, it's about the transition from one kind of thing to another kind of thing. And the particular transition that got him started is one that we're all very familiar with, which is, oh, well, sorry. Those of us who are old enough are familiar with this. Some of our listeners may be so young that they don't remember what a CD is, or they only know in the abstract. But Chris in my generation and people somewhat younger than us have lived through a transition from getting your music on a disc that had data on it that was read by a little laser to getting your music out of nowhere onto your phone. And I think that's what got him started, right? Seemingly out of nowhere, as we both know, because one of the very powerful parts of Divine's argument, and we'll loop back to this, is, as you say, the thing that led him into it, which is the sort of cursory sense, the cursory impression that digital music and streaming music is somehow less resource intensive than the construction of millions of plastic objects most of which will be discarded and wind up in landfill. And one of the very sobering parts of Divine's decomposed is that the post-consumption phase of data and the pre-consumption phase of data are at least as resource-intensive as CDs or, to take it back even earlier, polyvinyl chloride 
LPs. And so to get the full picture, let's let's take it back to the first step, which is the shellac record. The resonances that are here, both in terms of our book project, but also, curiously, in terms of our somewhat more personal shared biography, are quite notable. The shellac record is a 12-inch flat disc made out of a compound which comprises both mineral and also other types of organic matter. And that disc revolves in the archetypal form at 78 revolutions per minute and a needle in a tone arm, like the needle for a vinyl LP player, waggles back and forth in the tone arm and that is reproduced into sound. But shellac itself is made of several different kinds of natural substances, most of which are highly resource intensive. It comes from the lac, L-A-C, which is the sappy secretion of a species of beetle, which is native to Southern and Eastern Asia. And some of us know this, and certainly my friends who are in the 78s community who collect 78s and listen in that format and talk about the eloquence of that moment. They can tell me about shellac, but there are other substances as well, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, I just want to say, I can remember growing up in the 1970s with some shellac records in the house that must have come from my grandparents' generation. And what I really remember about them is they were heavy. I didn't know about the beetles. I mean, the insect beetles that were on the records. Yeah, and I remember hearing from my parents that my grandmother, who was born in 1887, had a secret stash of 78 RPM shellac records of blues queens like Bessie Smith, which, as the German wife of a New York publishing magnate, she had to conceal from her husband. And I also remember these 78s as being heavy and especially fragile. They shatter easily. And in fact, Divine tells an amazing story about a British entertainer, the actor who played Dame Edna Etheridge, I think, whose first job at the BBC was to go into the storage units at the BBC with a hammer and smash shellac records to make space for more storage, which my 78 collector friends would, that would just cause them night sweats, yeah? So I remember 78 shellac discs, 78s, and I remember that they were fragile, but they also capture a particular moment. Lac is only one of the components in the 78. The other component, and this is the, the thing that blew my mind when I ran into it in Divine's work and made me think instantly of my friend Tom and of our shared history, is that another major component of a shellac record is limestone. Now, listeners might ask, why is that resonant with Tom and Chris's history? Well, Tom and Chris met at Indiana University in Southern Indiana, which was one of the locations to which the Gannett and then the Columbia Record Manufacturing Companies moved in the 20s to have closer access to the limestone, which would be pulverized and mixed with shellac and other, with lac and other components and turned into these shellac discs. In fact, I believe that more than once Tom came to hear me at a gig that I had at a breakfast joint in Indiana called the Quarry Diner. Let me just move us forward here a little bit. One of the things that this 
that's important, I guess, is the transition from one material to another. That's how he structures the story he's telling. So what about the transition from shellac to vinyl? Okay, I can talk about that transition. He dates it around 1950. But I, I want to back up just a second, and I want to offer not a critique, but an additional nuance to Divine's story. The first thing to observe is that he's consciously and intentionally and quite credibly limiting himself to the history of these, the time span of these three capture methods. There are methods that preceded it, and there's another whole series of stories to be told about lithography and that kind of thing. That's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is that he does a marvelous job, very important job, of emphasizing the environmental and the human cost of the production of lac and of the production of limestone. He says, quote, every system of inscription is tied to a system of extraction. Every discourse network is a resource network. And that very succinct locution really bears unpacking a system of inscription, like inscribing print from a stone onto a, a lithograph, or inscribing audio sound into a shellac record, is tied to a system of extraction, extraction of minerals, extraction of organic material, extraction of human labor. Likewise, every discourse network is a resource network. In order for people to engage in discourse, in order for people to make records, in order for people to consume records, in order for people to be among the voices which we and our project say we want to hold space for, they need to have the resources. They need to be not only the source of the labor energy data wealth, but they also need to be able to shape how it is employed. So the human cost. As we've suggested, the harvesting of lac in South and East Asia is disproportionately done by people who are underpaid at the bottom end of the economic or social scale and frequently in conditions of considerable hardship. It is additionally, potentially it has the risk of being massively damaging to the forests in which these beetles live. Limestone does the same thing because limestone consumes massive, first, it consumes massive amounts of fresh water. That's part of what you do when you're quarrying limestone. And secondly, it's pulverization. Pulverizing limestone takes even more fresh water, and it leaches lime into the soil. So it can be a real environmental disaster as well. And this is not to condemn those engaged in the process. It's to recognize that each of these processes has a cost. The production of shellac had a cost. We're going to discover the production of vinyl has a cost. We're going to discover that the production of disembodied data has a cost. I think we can establish that's a theme of this book, which is the cost, the hidden costs of the materials that we use to access music. So after shellac comes the next stage, which is vinyl. So what, is, what does he have to say about vinyl and what is vinyl actually? He opens the book with a kind of ethnographic account, very powerful account, of visiting a vinyl manufacturing facility in Thailand and about the size of the facility, the numbers of people involved there, and also the very tight security around it. In fact, he is prevented from entering the facility and a representative of the company meets him at his hotel room in Bangkok or wherever he is. And the reason for that is because vinyl is, uh, it's essentially an outgrowth of a shift in production, largely generated by the Second World War 
into the production of vinyl via the extraction of and the synthesis of polyvinyl chloride. And as we know now, polyvinyl chloride is a horrific carcinogen. PVCs are where Superfund sites are what Superfund sites get contaminated with. And so the security, the very tight security that Divine describes in this ethnographic account is around the fact that this particular manufacturing company knows full well that the process of extraction and synthesis and profit in which they're engaged is an environmental as well as a human disaster. And that's one of the, I think, the tensions he's playing with in this book is because he knows that many of his readers are aware or maybe themselves involved in this kind of new return to vinyl. That's a thing that's going on right now. My teenage kids are into that. In other contexts, I've read of that as a kind of, they call it a retro technology. And it's never presented, you don't, you think of it as something kind of positive. You know, you're returning to something that's more human, more analog. And one of the things that came across to me from reading Decomposed was the reminder that PVCs, the plastics, have an enormous environmental and health cost that kind of went away at the next transition, which was from vinyl to the CD disc. So what's different about a CD disc? For our purposes and for the purposes of Kyle Devine's political ecology, almost nothing. Because it still entails resource extraction, particularly in the realm of plastics and petroleum, it still has, despite the fact that Tom and I will remember, that the CD was touted as being this very much improved audio experience and an unerodable format, a format that could not be eroded, like eroding the quality of a vinyl record because it had scratches. The CD was touted as it's permanent and it is always going to be pristine. Neither of those things are true. The CD is actually a relatively unstable medium. It is not safe for archiving data. And a point, I think maybe some of the most powerful parts of what Devine's argument establishes is that the afterlife, the post-consumption life of the CD is disastrous. Hmm. And he, he does this in a couple of different ways that are very powerful. Not only does the physical object, is it difficult to uh, recycle the physical object, the vast majority of CDs like the vast majority of vinyl records before them, were not recycled. They wind up in landfills. And it was touted that the CD was a smaller format. It could carry more information, and so its net per unit impact was less. But he makes a very persuasive argument, which comes out of political ecology, that in fact, the readiness and the economy of manufacture of the object exploded the volume of production. So that when the CD revolution, which Tom mentioned at the top of the pro program began, that CD revolution vastly expanded the overall volume of discs produced. And we all remember it. There were companies that reissued their entire catalogs and we would get CDs from AOL in the mail, whether we wanted them or not. And then the question was how to dispose of them. And what Divine says is, and they're not disposed of. They are extracted, manufactured, and landfilled. And one of the things that I thought was really striking in the book was that nowadays we've been thinning out our CD collections, if that's what we had, if you're of a certain generation. But many of those CDs are still gathering dust and they haven't been disposed of yet, but they will be. And that is a danger. 
it's danger and it's looming. This can sound like a very scary story, and it is a certainly a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call and a reminder that music consumption in any medium, up to including data, which we'll speak about in just a second, entails a cost, a human cost, an ecological cost, an environmental cost. I also want to take this further because I think that Divine's argument and the argument that we are making in the big book, and I would say in this podcast, is that it is appropriate that we who love music, work with music, consume music, find that music enriches our lives, find that it helps us to connect to people whose experiences are different than our own. This kind of thinking, Divine's kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that this material history model suggests forces us to think fruitfully about consequences and unseen impacts. So I don't want to engage just now in a false historical equivalency, but when we think about data and we imagine, oh, it's coming streaming to my phone and there's no physical object and there's no CD or LP or 78 to wind up in a landfill, the environmental impact, the human cost, both are not absent they are comparatively invisible. And here's the historical equivalency I thought of. There was a period in the history of enslavement in the Western Hemisphere when people who lived in towns like Bristol and London and Glasgow or like Southampton, where Tom lives, could see all around them the material benefits of the new world trade in sugar. There were new buildings and there were statues of political pioneers, and there were bathhouses, and there was new wealth. And part of the reason that that was experienced as progress and the means by which people could seek cultural experiences like the music of Beethoven and Haydn was because the actual human suffering that made that sugar wealth possible was invisible over the curve of the horizon in the Caribbean. And the cost of the digital data streaming revolution is similarly and unfortunately invisible over the curve of the horizon, say, to the north above the Arctic Circle or to the south in the global south. Good. And that brings us to the final transformation in his book, the supposed dematerialization of music from the CD record to the streaming service. And that's the sting in the tail of his argument, which is that it's not a dematerialization at all. It's just been the material has been displaced into giant server farms or the people who work to sustain the data industry that we can't see. And thanks, Chris. I really like that connection you drew just now. We're lingering a little bit on this book that we've both read because it does seem to speak to that issue. Can I take us a little further and just ask, what does Divine think we need to do? If we know that music's dematerialization is not really dematerialization, what's his call to action? Well, that's actually a little bit more open-ended because my read would be that Divine insists that we think about the entire global political and material economy that makes music possible. He's doing it within the era between about 1900 and the present. In our project, we're doing it across not a 100, but a 500-year span. 
I think implicitly divine is making a call for awareness, consciousness, and responsibility. So if I'm a historian telling a story, what is my responsibility and how should I react? I'm saying, I'm asking this, I was a bit of a loaded question because the end of the book is suddenly turns to a kind of narrower audience, which is us musicologists and what we should be doing. And the suggestion that he makes is that we as musicologists, as music historians, we need to actually back away from the music. And I find that a little bit hard. He says in the end of the book that we need as musicologists or music historians to stop going on about our personal experiences of the music and or anyone's experience of the music and concentrate on this question of political economy and our responsibilities. And I would absolutely endorse responsibility, awareness of material history, political ecology, human and environmental cost. But as someone whose own music making exists largely outside the world of the conservatory, largely outside the world of the commodified musical object, I still believe that there is a place, not yet addressed as part of Divine's project because it's not his goal, to look at the experience of people who make music as process in face-to-face -face circumstances. And especially, just to push back against Divine a little bit, to bring into the conversation those artists and creative and commercial actors for whom each age of shellac, vinyl, and data has been a source of enormous empowerment. And those are largely people from the so-called, what he calls the global south, who might really argue the CD was one of the best things that ever happened to Ladysmith Black Mambazo for example. Yeah, that's a famous case, isn't it, Chris? The reference is to Paul Simon's album, Graceland, from the early 1980s, where he worked with musicians in South Africa, in apartheid South Africa, and later came in for serious criticism for the way that they may or may not have been properly compensated. And so I think what you're getting at is that these media revolutions that are the subject of Divine's book, Yes, they are indexes of different kinds of environmental destruction, but also they were the means by which artists like Robert Johnson, who we spoke about a few episodes back, found their way into the ears of a global public. And it, it is a difficult question. It's a difficult ethical question for you to ponder around your kitchen table or wherever you ponder your difficult questions. Without the shellac record, there's no blues revolution. And without the, who would want to live without the blues? And I also agree with you, Chris, and it's very pertinent. Obviously, Kyle Devine wrote this book a few years ago, came out in 2019, he didn't know what was coming. The COVID-19 pandemic has asked a lot of questions of us about the value of live music. And I know the kind of music that you practice, yourself as a, as a musician, but also as a, as a teacher, it doesn't get mediatized or made, you know, made into a medium. It's an experience, it's a process. And I would say the same for many of us. Um, I'm not ashamed to confess that I'm an amateur choir singer in a very conservative British way. I go on my, well, I did, I haven't for more than a year now. I would go on a, of a Friday evening to sing with other amateur singers through 
great moments of the classical tradition and I enjoy the fellowship and the singing together. And that is not really covered by this book. So that's something that, that we in our project might feel called upon to think about a little more, which is like, how do you capture the personal experience of making, consuming, being in the music and how, how do you write about that? And so for me, the sequel to Divine's wonderful book is to say, in light of the COVID pandemic, which he could not have anticipated, and of the tremendous structural vulnerabilities of our worldwide community, which COVID has revealed in the starkest terms, that if and as we emerge from COVID, we remember that the global project of music both precedes its commodification, but also will require nurture and conscious advocacy to survive its commodification. So sum it up for me then, Chris. This book is an intervention in music's material history. It's an intervention in how you write history. Are you going to go to your CD collection and look at it in a different way now than you did before you read the book? I am. Yeah, me too. I have to say I haven't fallen for the vinyl thing, although there are a couple record players in my house because I have teenagers who've picked it up as their retro technology. But I will go back and look at the vinyl records I have from my family. They're stored away somewhere, perhaps with a different eye to what is really going on underneath them. So it was a real pleasure to, to find in this book to bring it back to the beginning, it's something's in the air, in the way people are talking about music right now, about its materials. And when we sat down to do our project, and we came up with this strapline, labor energy data, I don't think that we were referring at the time to, to Kyle Devine's work, although we may have picked it up out the corner of our eye, as is so often the case. There's something in the air, and there's something, I think it's something to be welcomed about that, about finding ways to tell histories of music that are not just about composers in their works. We need to think a little bit more about how we are in the world and how, as you pointed out before, how these things that are happening, we call them processes, like enslavement, like global heating. They are also part of the story, and the challenge is to sort of... To be a citizen yeah. of the planet. We've been talking about data, and the way in which Kyle Devine's decomposed book addresses the material ecology of data as music, music as data, both in its manufacture and also very crucially in its disposal, as well as its dissemination. But we've been basically talking about human activity inscribed upon data and then consumed as data by other humans. But in this next segment, Tom is going to take us into another realm of data and another dynamic between data and humans. And that's going to be about data machines sending information back to humans. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So we've come now to the final postcard of our series. We're going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about some work that I've been doing independently of this project. Our project is very interesting because we are taking on a big, some big questions. And one of the things about when you take on big questions, a lot of the time you're standing on the shoulders of others, such as Kyle Devine, who we've just been talking about. But some of the stuff that we're, we're writing about 
in this book is coming out of our own research as academics. And at present, I'm working on a project called Jazz as Social Machine. Shout out to the Alan Turing Institute in London, the UK government's National Institute for Artificial Intelligence and Data Science, who have kindly funded the project and bought a little of my time over about two years. And what I'm looking at is what Chris just said. I'm looking about the data coming back to us from the machine. And I've chosen as a test case, the genre, the practice of jazz, which is a tough nut to crack, it turns out, for our friends in AI music. And quite a lot of money is being spent on it, on this, on cracking this nut. And I've come to this project not as a computer scientist, because that's not what I am, but as a, I guess, in Kyle Devine's sense, as a political ecologist. So I'm thinking a little bit about what are the politics here? How is this? What's going on? And I think a good thing to do right now would be just to play a few seconds of AI jazz. So we've been listening to some computer-generated jazz that's generated by a project called Musica at the Stevens Institute of Technology. And um, perhaps a little later, we can talk about what that what that relationship of that music is to real jazz, but it is generated completely by machine learning. And I want to just interject here for the sake of the listener that Tom mentioned that he's a jazz listener, and Tom has also some experience with jazz practice, which is another thing that we have in common. And it links us again to our alma mater and the great jazz pedagogue, shout out to David N. Baker, rest in power, in whose jazz improvisation classes we worked. And as someone who has been a jazz practitioner in my day, I had no awareness until Tom brought me on board the Turing Project that there were people worldwide spending quite a lot of computing power and quite a lot of money trying to make machines that play jazz. And Tom did me the favor, did me the honor, did me expressed confidence in my capacities to ask me to listen to some of this stuff and say, why is this, is this or is this not jazz? And I held forth and, and it led us into these conversations. But Tom, what I would really like to hear for myself, once again, and for the sake of the listeners, is why do the AI people think that this is some kind of a, a benchmark, a litmus test? If a machine can play jazz, what does that reveal about the machine's capacities? To understand the answer to that question, you have to understand a little bit about what AI is. I'm going to try to keep this short because artificial intelligence AI is a complicated piece of terminology that's often used in a way that frightens people. So we're worried about what they call general AI. So the machines take over, they decide that the humans are a problem and they just get rid of us. And that is a danger, I suppose, a philosophical danger that one needs to worry about. But most of what's going on in AI right now is problem solving. And the problem solving happens in a domain called machine learning. And jazz is a machine learning problem because, so members of our audience who once were beginner jazz students like myself, I never really progressed beyond beginner. You probably remember having to learn to, you know, what note to play at the right time, you know, what, what the notes of the chord are, what scale, what note to play over the changes over the chords. And so I think that if you know a little bit about jazz and you're a computer scientist, you think, oh, I could get a machine to learn how to do that. And then the problems start. Yeah, the machine can calculate so many possible operations so swiftly that surely we can teach it to, establish, to teach itself 
by process of elimination, which choices are optimal. Yeah. There's been a speeding up of people looking at these kinds of problems since uh, Deep Blue beat the chess grandmaster. So people reckon if a computer can see a whole chess match, I don't know, 30,000 moves in advance and therefore win, then 30 million, I don't know, some, some huge amount of numbers of, of possibilities, then surely jazz would be just that kind of problem. And this is what attracted me to writing about it because it's not. I don't think. So I'm not, not a computer scientist. So I, I had to learn, I've had to learn a lot about how this artificial intelligence stuff is really working. And one of my eureka moments was when I realized that these machine learning music things work by brute force. So what you get is a giant random number generator that generates all sorts of numbers that are then translated into pitches. And then there's another component, another operation, which looks at all of the stuff that's been generated and decides which one of them fits. So you've got kind of two boxes. The one box makes up the music and the other box decides if the music is correct or not. And that's how they're designing what you heard was a result of that process. The thing is, and Chris shouted out David Baker, who was our, our teacher. David Baker, I remember very clearly taught us something about jazz, which was that it is not that. It's not remembering what note to play at the right time. It's actually remembering what other people had done, right? And you need to remember all these different answers and then pick one that works for you. Yeah, because the core, a core practice in learning to play jazz is to learn what other people have played, particularly melodic soloists, because it's an, a music which prioritizes melodic improvisation over harmonic progressions, over chord changes. And if you wanted to understand how Charlie Parker or Eric Dolphy or Lester Young or Cannonball Adderley played the saxophone, you wanted to emulate that, then the way you did that was to learn to play their solos. You transcribed their solos, and you could transcribe them just to your ear and or transcribe them to music notation when we used, when we used a pencil on a piece of paper. But the key thing was to learn to replicate that improvisation, not so you could play it as if it was your own, but to learn a vocabulary. Mm. And I would argue, though I'm not a linguist, to learn something of a grammar, of what musical motifs, like linguistic motifs, fit together to create communicative comprehension. So I've been out there among the computer people with this project for a while. And I have to say, it's very pleasant to be funded by the Alan Turing Institute, but I am certainly, humanities people are already a minority in the Institute and people working on music are a very small minority. And in the days when I was still able to go up to the Institute in London, we would have meetings in meeting rooms and you know the modern meeting room has like a computer monitor that says what the name of the meeting is and what the next one is and right. So I would have the little room and I would meet with my team for an hour and it would say on the monitor, jazz as social machine. And then the people from the next meeting would actually be standing early. They'd be waiting for us to come out because they were so curious, like, what are you actually doing? Like, wh what is this? What's happening there? So that was a very pleasant human experience. But my friends in, in, in what's called natural language processing, which is an important component of digital humanities and the studies of machine learning, like how do you understand how languages work? One of them said to me, oh, okay, when I kind of told the story that Chris did about remembering other versions, she said to me, so jazz is just like linked data. So it's just like enormous chains of links to things that are relevant. 
And that is not how the most jazz algorithms are thinking these days. They're still trying to, to crush the problem with pure computing force. And I want to take this a step further, because when you told me that story about the person you met in the hallway saying, so it's chains of linked data, I thought, well, that's, that's a pretty good analogy, at least anecdotally reflecting my own experience of how I put together a jazz improvisation in the days when I did that, which is improvisation is, in most music idioms, is not free composition. It is not the invention of something that never existed before. It is the spontaneous selection and unique combination of previously learned bits of data. Most famously, Tom and I would have shared the experience of learning David Baker's 101 bebop links <laughs> to play over two five-chord progressions, learn these 101 eight-beat patterns, which outline the two chords of a 2-5, and then play them all on your instrument, all 101, and then play them in all 12 keys, and then play them over chord progressions of famous songs. And that is a very, very good way of learning how to take a small vocabulary and manipulate it with a lot of semantic flexibility. But when Tom brought me on board the project and we had a nice meeting um, at Southampton with the members of some of the members of his team, and we sat in this room and there was a whiteboard and Tom captained the meeting, I had this nagging thought in my head, and I don't know whether I said it at that, that time because I was trying to be pleasant and collegial, but I know that we've come back to it and come back to it and come back to it again in working with a wonderful sound designer and composer named Brona Martin, which is that it is not only chains of linked data, it's chains of linked data and their elusive associations in the listener's ear. It's about memory. This is, I think, brings me to the core of the problem that we're trying to discuss here, which is the datafication of music, right? So turning it into zeros and ones. Earlier in this episode, we talked about the dangerous ecological consequences of that process. And now we're talking about the creative aspect of that. And jazz, more than any as much as any other kind of music is about storytelling, right? It's about remembering when you heard that tune the first time. So one album I think about is Sunday at the Village Vanguard. Bill Evans with Paul Motion on drums and the bassist Scott LaFaro was recorded on a Sunday at the Village Vanguard in 1961. And there are a couple of things about that album that always strike me. The first thing is something that you know just from listening to it, which is you can hear the glasses clinking in the background. So you really feel the liveness of it. And that is something that, of course, the machine learning algorithm is not going to provide. I suppose we could tell it to make up some background noises and stick those in too. The other thing that you have to know about that is that Scott LaFaro, who is a genius bass player, was killed in a car accident a few days later. So that was his last appearance with Bill Evans or with anybody. And there's a I mean, it sounds a little bit, you know, heart on my sleeve, but there's a piece of human mortality in that album every time you listen to it. And I guess that really, as simple as a, a point as that is, that, that really brings forward the question of where the human is in relationship to the machines. And that's why the project's called Jazz as Social Machine, because what we want to do is understand jazz as a machine learning jazz as a cooperation between people and machines, not just as a replacement of people by machines. And thinking backwards from that, and so one of the themes of the book is that jazz always already 
was a cooperation between people and machines. And this is a connection to what we've been talking about the whole episode today, which is without the shellac record, there can be no jazz. That's provocative. I would even call that a provocative intervention because I imagine that there are people who would say there were folks playing jazz before the shellac record ever captured their performances. And I, and I would tend to agree with those folks. But what I would say in parallel or as a nuance or as a, another, another take on it is to say that the machine has always been in jazz and that it's not necessary to imagine jazz before the machine because a saxophone is a machine at its time a quite innovative experimental machine, which was adopted into jazz contrary to its original design purposes. So the machine has always been in jazz. And, the, and I would absolutely agree with you that there has always been a human-machine interface in jazz. If you look at the moment that jazz crystallized around the word jazz and the practice of kind of improvising popular dance music in a certain way, that happens to be, you know, end of World War I. It happens to be at a time when the shellac record started to travel around different sort of port cities. And Michael Denning's book that you mentioned earlier in, the, in this, today's episode, Noise Uprising, is about that. And he actually positions jazz as just one of a kind of music that occurred because of this traveling around of recordings. Yeah, and this is so huge, Tom, because this was part of our very first conversations about how we were going to try to shape, structure this big book project and how we might use the podcast a way to move, as a way to move forward our own thinking about the project. And it led us to networks, networks of steamships and networks of distribution and networks by which 78s traveled on scene ships. And it took us actually back to the first half of this current episode to this idea of actor network theory of operations occurring within networks of relationships. Let me just try and wrap this up then with something that brings us back to AI jazz and trying to understand what's really going on when people and material come together, materials come together to make music. So the issue that I'm pretty sure is a problem with AI jazz is the people who are doing it, the, who are writing the algorithms. They're very good at the maths and the computer science and the coding and all of those activities that need to go in to make what we heard, you know, a few minutes ago. But what they need to think about a little more is they need to think about how human actors and machines work together and take cues from each other and things change. So, so one thing that's come up really recently in my work on this project is about how the actual programs that people use to remember I was saying about how the random number generator makes notes and there's another one that what that other machine is doing that's doing the checking it's actually a, a risk reducer right so it's reducing the risk that the machine will make the wrong choice now sometimes it over reduces the risk and so you get very unrisky music i.e the same note over and over again so this is like a problem with music AI, in particular with jazz AI. The other thing that comes up from that is, of course, we already have lots of computer programs that reduce risk, right? They, they're going to drive our cars, they're diagnosing, they're reading our x-rays, but they also decide who gets a mortgage. And there's a whole world of computer programming that is not neutral, that is underneath the world of machine learning, that is about reducing the chance of making an error. 
And that is probably not the way you want to approach music. So that's an aesthetic question. What I hope we can do with this project is to speak to the engineers a little bit and remind them that jazz always was a kind of interactive. And, and, and I just want to finish with like a story. And the story is when the shellac record comes into, I don't know, uh, a bar in Marseille in the south of France, and they put on some hot dance music, right? There's people there with instruments. And they listen to it, and they hear it, and they copy it, and they play it. And they're interacting right there with the machine, just as much as we're interacting with our machines today. And that's the kind of story that we want to be telling. You've been listening to Sounding History. Keep in touch. Whether you're a music lover, history enthusiast, student, or just plain interested, we'd love to hear what you think. Contact us at soundinghistorypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out all the show notes. And follow us on Instagram at Sounding History Podcast and Twitter at Sounding History. We look forward to hearing your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. And if you like what we're doing, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review to help other folks find the show. And finally, if you're a new listener and want to learn more about who we are and the ongoing book project that inspired the podcast, check out episode one. Sounding History is funded by grants from the University of Southampton Faculty of the Arts and Humanities and by Texas Tech University. Production by Seedpod Sound at seedpodsound.com.